is David, and I will be reading the sermon passage, which is Matthew 7, 13 through 29. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, mighty works in your name? And then, I, then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were, astond, were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, I put the four questions that Jesus really wants to ask us uh, kind of interspersed throughout the passage on the page in your seat. These aren't questions that he exactly asks, but they're questions he raises. And the first question that he raises at the end of describing what life with the king and life in his kingdom is like is this, where do you most want to be? And I think that's a question that he raises in the first two verses. Um, think about it. Roads are very specific tools to get you to a very specific place. Nobody tonight just randomly said, I want to go to RUF and got on random roads, turn left, turn right, aimlessly wandered around town. You took very specific roads because you believed that those particular roads would get you to where you either wanted to be tonight or felt like you needed to be tonight. Here. So roads take you to a very particular place and your decisions of which roads you choose to travel reveal that the best indicator of where you think you need to be and where you most want to be. So it's a really helpful question to ask, what road are you on or what, what way are you living? What path are you on? What journey? What trajectory? What direction is your life going? Those are helpful questions to ask because what they really reveal is, where do you think you need to be? What do you think you're missing out on and you want more of? That's what those things reveal. Um, I bet that we could uh, take each other's phones and, you know, if you had like a week's worth of GPS data and you got to see all the places that we went over the past week, I bet we could learn a lot about each other and not just like in a creepy way. Like we could learn a lot about each other and like where do you spend the most time? What roads do you travel the most? I mean, we could see things like, I mean, if you're always at the library every night, I could tell a lot about you. Maybe what's important to you or what you're after here in these years. We're like, what's this address? You're here all the time. Like, oh, that's my boyfriend's house. That's my girlfriend's house. So you're like, always at the gym. Always at your living room, like in front of whatever. Um, we could tell a lot about each other. Now, what if, what if we could um, dig a little bit deeper into that and also at and see little, the little hot spots or the clusters of where your mind most easily travels? What pathways, what thought patterns uh, do your emotions, do your, does your mind most easily travel? Same idea. It's taking you to where you think you need to be or where you want to be. Jesus says that in life there are only two ways, two roads. And the, these roads are taking people to the place 
they most need to be and want to be, the place that they think they most need to be and want to be. There's two ways, he says, in verse 13 and 14. Now, when he says that there's two ways, he's implying that a lot of stuff that we're prone to believe, it's 2021, this is hard stuff to believe, there's a lot of things that we are prone to believe and think these days. He's saying those are not actually true. For example, um, it's not true that there's two ways to live our lives, and then there's like a big old rest area at the split in the road where people, maybe you've got some of this in your heart too, non-committal people are like, I'd rather not have to deal with such consequential questions and like make big life decisions that have eternal implications. I'd rather just kind of park at the split in the road and kind of chill in the I don't know or I'll deal with that later. Jesus says there are two roads that every human being is on right now. And they're on that road, and we've decided to get on the road that we're on because we think that road, the wide road, with tons of people on it that leads to destruction, we didn't know it was leading that, but we think it's taking us somewhere, or the narrow road that is steep and difficult but leads to life. So there's not the rest area in the middle where we can kind of, we can kind of just chill and say, let's punt this decision until I grow up and need to deal with these kind of things. Jesus says you're already on a road and you're in motion. And there's reasons that you probably know better than we do about why you're on that road or I'm on my road. He's also saying there's no third road. There's no third way of compromise uh, in Jesus' estimation where it's like, well, I want to take a little bit of the stuff that we talked about this fall. There's some helpful principles in there. I can be a better me. I don't like anxiety. Let's take some stuff from a week or two ago like yeah, I might need to work on um, whatever, some of that lust stuff or my anger problem. I'm going to take a little bit of that. But I also want a lot of the way the world does business. I want a lot of the kingdom of the world. And Jesus says, when it comes to roads, you can't be on two roads at one time, right? I mean, it doesn't make sense in real life. You can't be going down Lumpkin towards five points and at the same time going up Lumpkin towards downtown. Roads take you to one particular place. Or another. And you can't be on two paths at one time. And lastly, I'd say right now, um, when Jesus says there are two ways to live our lives, two roads to travel, two destinations, he's implying that kind of the, the, the popular thing to think um, of, well, there's many ways to God, there's many ways to truth, and kind of you do, you do your truth and it'll lead to God, however you imagine him or her or them to be. And Jesus is implying, I mean, you think we're in a pluralistic moment where there's lots of ideas about how to get to God. He was in a more pluralistic moment, surrounded by pantheons, surrounded by the Egyptian gods, the Assyrian gods, the Babylonian gods. And so what he's saying was just as controversial then. And he's saying, not that there are many roads to God, you pick your truth and you'll eventually wind up before his feet. But he says, I'm the way. And I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and nobody, listen to the exclusivity of his words, I am the way, the truth, the life, and nobody can come to the Father except through me. Someone might say, come on, don't be so narrow. There's a lot of ways to God. People can follow whatever the path they want to to God, but that comment and that claim, when it's put under the microscope, doesn't make sense, Right? Because to make that claim presumes that you have traveled every one of these ways you say there are to find the actual real living God. And you've discovered that in fact, yes, every road does lead to God. That's quite a claim to make. You know, think about practical life. If, if a new friend in town said, hey, I want to go to the Iron Horse tonight. I've never been there. How do I get there? And you said, oh, just get on any road. You'll, it'll take you there. You're going to have a lot of angry disappointed friends who are either stuck in cul-de-sacs or dead ends or driving further and further out of town away from the iron horse. It doesn't work even in real life. Why do we come up with things like these? Why are we so resistant? We want a rest area. We want a little bit of both. Or we want to say, don't worry about the two roads. There's lots of roads. Wherever you are is fine. I think it's because um, we, we rightly realize that what Jesus' words here are pressing us to a choice, to a decision. They really are. He's saying, why have you chosen to travel the road you're traveling? What is it? What's the pot of gold at the end of it? 
It's made you put all their blinkers on, all those twists and turns, all those detours you've made to stay on the way you're going. What is it? That's what he's really getting after. So then Jesus describes, after he kind of says we're all on a road and we're all going somewhere, he says, uh, he describes what these roads are like and who's on them. And he says this, if you're on the wrong road, the way that, that, that walks away from him and away from his kingdom and away from his kingdom's ways, if you're a part of the kingdoms of the world, kind of we've called this series the counter kingdom, if you're a part of kind of the kingdoms of the world, the way the world does business, the way the world seeks life, you're part of that world, Jesus' description of it is that it's going to be easy peasy, wide and flat, um, kind of like when you're on the interstate and you almost forget where you've been the past few miles because you're just, you're dead straight, foot on the gas pedal, cruise control is on. And he's saying, um, it is, boy, is it crowded because it is so easy, requires no effort whatsoever. There's a man named John Stott who described this better than I could possibly, and so why not just quote him? He said, this way, this path, of, the path that leads to destruction, he says, it has no curbs, no boundaries on either thought or conduct. Travelers on this road follow their own inclinations and every desire of their fallen heart. Superficiality, self-love, hypocrisy, mechanical religion, false ambition, judgmentalism, these things don't even have to be learned or cultivated. No effort is required to practice them. That's why the, why the wide road is easy. In other words, he's saying that's where the current is carrying things. And so the wide road is filled with people who are just sitting there being carried up in the current. No effort. That's why it's easy. It doesn't take effort to float down a river. Why does he call the narrow way hard and narrow and difficult? Why are few on it? Um, to, to, to make, I, I guess, our speech a little bit more concrete, less abstract, um, why would he say the Christian life would be narrow and seem difficult and seem steep? You're like, isn't it by grace? Shouldn't it be easy? Shouldn't it be kind of autopilot? Like, God saves me, he gives me his spirit, he helps me change and grow, and shouldn't that be autopilot too? Well, think about the stuff we've talked about this fall, if you've been around. And let's put them under the microscope and look at how difficult they actually are if you've tried to listen to God and obey and follow. Let's start with the very basics. Putting, you know this phrase we use, just put your faith in Jesus. Anybody who believes in their heart and professes with their mouth that Christ is Lord will be saved, Romans 10. Put that under the microscope. What does it look like to put your faith in Jesus? Well, that means you showed up somewhere, you put yourself in the hearing of the word of God, which is already a huge feat, right? You listened. You didn't walk out. You actually sat there and you said, I don't agree with this stuff. I don't even know half of what this person's saying, but you sat and you listened. Then you decided to continue to consider the words that you heard and to reconsider them and churn them over in your mind. Maybe you grabbed a friend. Maybe you said to an intern, let's hang out and talk about this. Maybe you read books. Maybe you started to pray. Your ideas about God slowly began to thaw and change, and you saw him as beautiful and compelling and real, and his word is true, and you asked for his mercy. Is that easy? Not a single part of that is easy. Faith is a gift, but it has to be exercised. What about working through the heart-wrenching process of forgiving enemies, people who have legitimately wronged you? We talked about that maybe a month ago. Like, is that easy or is that hard? Jesus says to love our enemies. Someone strikes you on one cheek to turn the other cheek to them. Is that hard or is that easy? I would imagine it feels like you're dying it's so hard. To, to receive that kind of dishonoring injury and, and, and instead of reacting in vengeance or retaliation, responding thoughtfully, truthfully in love, that's hard. Boy, is that a narrow way that few people are on. What's easy is knee-jerk retaliation. What about engaging in the mental warfare required to remind yourself, I'm not an orphan, I'm not an orphan. These intuitions that I feel about God, that he's stingy, that he's absent, that he doesn't love me, that he's playing hide-and-seek with me, they're not true, mind. They're not true. I'm a son, I'm a daughter, he loves me. He takes care of the birds. He grows the little weeds and dresses them better. He's going to take care of me, so... 
concern myself with seeking him and seeking his kingdom. He'll take care of all of this. Is that mental warfare easy or is it difficult? You know what's easy? Every errant little thought, suspicion, or doubt that comes into your mind gets your full attention. That's easy. Resisting is difficult. So I think that's part of what Jesus means when he says this way is narrow, it's hard, it's steep. And Jesus knows that this narrow road is difficult because it's the road he's on and that he walks. Every day of his life, this was the road of kingdom life, of obedience to his beloved father, of walking in these ways of life. And so he can be patient and empathetic with you. But I want you to hear this. The way of the Christian life, of of kingdom life with Jesus, of submitting, of laying down your life, denying yourself, picking up your cross and walking with your Lord, letting him disciple you and coach you and train you and change you. That way of life is also easy. Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, travelers on the broad and easy road that leads to destruction, you who are burned out from that, tired, confused, and disoriented, Come to me, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So how is this road with Jesus, this narrow road, how is it both difficult and easy? Well, we've already described how it's difficult. It's easy because it's the road that he is on. And it's easy because it is a road that leads to life. And just like any road trip you've been on, the closer you are to the destination, the more you begin to experience it. Think about the Braves. And how there's two ways that the players have talked about this past series. And I forget, they play 150 or 170 games, something ridiculous like that, this season. And then all the practices, all the travel, all the batting cage time, the fielding work. In the post-game interviews, right after they won the World Series, everybody was euphoric. But then in the, in the interviews uh, a few days later, they started to say the season was grueling whatever it was, nine, ten months of travel, of, you know, scores and scores of games, having to turn around the team in August. They said it was absolutely grueling. It was the hardest thing we ever did, but it was also the best months of my life. And I wouldn't trade it for anything because of the guys that I was with and where this all led. The way of Jesus is difficult and it's easy. Jesus' other question that he wants to ask us is in that second chunk, uh, 15 through 20, and he says, whose opinion matters most to us? Let's make that a little bit more down to earth too. If you ask yourself this question, whose perspective has most consistently influenced your perspectives in the past five years? What, which people or which influences come to your mind? If you think back over the past five years, do you begin to see a general pattern of your father's wise words informing your perspective, your worldview, reforming it, pulling it back into reality? Is his worldview rubbing off on you? Think about the things we've talked about this fall. Are Jesus' words, his approach, his perspective, his wisdom on sex or anger, or divorce, or sexuality, or lust, how you deal with anxiety, or how you pray, are those words beginning to rub off on you and get inside and change you, even a little bit? Or when you look over the past five years of your life, is the story that emerges that my friend group, or other influences, cultural perspectives, are becoming my perspectives. They're eroding what I used to believe and think, and these other influences are now rubbing off on me and they're becoming the way that I view the world, the way that I view money, the way that I view marriage or sex or sexuality or truth or whatever else. Who has your ear? Whose opinion changes yours? Has the Bible, has God's word ever changed your opinion on something, even if you disagreed with it? But you found yourself submitting and saying, I was wrong, Lord, help me understand why it's this way and not the other way. Or have opinions you've gotten elsewhere been imposed on the Bible and now you're changing the Bible, imposing those opinions on it? 
I also want to mention this. It's not necessarily in the passage, but I think it fits and applies in this second chunk under the second question is the false prophet of your own gut, your own internal dialogue. And I'll be brief because we talked about this a few weeks ago with anxiety. But you've heard me say Paul Tripp's little quote, nobody has a bigger influence on your life than you because nobody talks to you more than you. Is that inner dialogue, are your intuitions a false prophet that tell you terrible things about God, his heart towards you, his love for sinners, his nearness to the weak? Does it tell you terrible things about you, how you're a lost cause, how you've been messing up too long? Or is it a true prophet that reminds you of what you know to be true from Scripture? Jesus says something, he warns us, he cautions us, he says, either road that you're on, whether the wide road that leads to destruction or the narrow road with Jesus has leaders and influencers, pastors on it, who are telling you like you're running a race, keep going, you can do it, you're on the right road. Each path has people on it telling you that you're on the right path. The false prophets on the road to destruction Seems pretty obvious, kind of affirming and applauding every decision that's made, saying you're going in the right direction, or the pastors, the priests, the leaders, the influencers, the brothers and sisters on the narrow road saying, hey, keep it up. I know it's hard. You're with Jesus. You're with his people. These are the ways of his kingdom, and there's life both now and at the end of this. Another thing Jesus points out that's pretty not intuitive. I wouldn't have ever guessed this, but he says, There's religious people. There's devoted, emotionally engaged, thoughtful religious people on both paths. He says, beware of these false prophets. They're wearing sheep's clothing. They appear gentle. They appear helpful. They appear like one of you, one of us, but they're not. Then he says in verse 21 and 23, there are people on the wide path that leads to destruction that many are on who say, in sincerity, Lord, Lord, I've taught the Bible in your name to people, and they appreciated it. I've done many works in your name. I've done great ministry in your name. I've even done miraculous things in your name. And Jesus is telling us disciples to beware that some of you are old enough. I promise you by the time you're my age, you will be old enough where many people that you looked up to and respected will leave Jesus will leave the faith and will say, I've become enlightened. I finally opened my mind and started investigating these things, and I don't believe any of this anymore. I was naive, believed in Santa Claus, believed in Jesus. I'm kind of beyond that stuff. And they won't necessarily pin you at a wall and try to get you to change your mind, but the influence will nevertheless be there, and it will be tugging at you. Are you crazy? Are you naive? Are you simple-minded? There's false prophets on both roads. Well, how do you tell the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet? A a teacher whose words you can trust in vulnerable moments and a teacher that you need to flee from because you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between truth and error. Jesus says, you will recognize in verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. What's he mean? The fruit that's growing out of their lives. Um, And are they... Are they, like, mean? Are they, they feel superior to other people? They have a, are they a different person in private than they are in public? You hear their humor, you hear the way they talk, and you're like, whoa, that is really different. Do they fear monger, always grumbling? Jesus might be saying, look at the fruit that's growing out of their own lives. Is there, is there real life on their insides that's beginning to come out on their outsides? Or is it just a delusion going on on the outside, just behavior? They've learned how to talk Christian, how to come to stuff regularly. Then he says, look at the fruit of their teaching. What kind of disciples are they making? Fighters? Culture warriors? People who are looser and looser with the scriptures and more and more impose whatever is in fat at the moment into the Bible and say, well, this is what God says, or God doesn't care. 
Look at the fruit of their disciples. What are their disciples becoming? And if you're following them or listening to them, who are you becoming under their instruction and their influence? The Apostle Paul helps us have a little bit of a litmus test. And he's not, Paul is describing characteristics that are beginning to bud in the life of someone who is alive in Jesus, who is a true Christian. He's not talking about fully formed fruit. He's saying like, you know, your little apple tree, that the, the beginnings of it, the leaves starting to shoot out, the, the tiniest little beginnings of a fruit forming. He calls them the fruits of life in the Spirit, Galatians 5. And what he describes there is an increasing love for other people, an increasing joy regardless of circumstance, an increasing patience with yourself and with other people, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And in that same passage, Paul describes right before it the fruits of the flesh, the fruits of an externally religious person with no true life inside. And he says, the fruits that come out are an increasing sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. The fruits that are showing up organically out of the insides of people in the road, the wide road, that's walking further and further step by step away from God. We know people by their fruits. Our insides produce our outsides. And so we trace the outside behavior and fruit back into what it means about a person's insides. The third question, and we're beginning to get towards the end. These are briefer. Why do you relate to God the way that you do? This is that third chunk to verse 21 through 23. These two verses, I'll get autobiographical just for a minute. These are the two verses that explain why I am a Christian. I never knew these verses were in the Bible. I was terrified when I discovered that they were in the Bible. I was in a Bible study. I've shared this story many times with you all. I won't go into it now, but I was in a Bible study where a friend was referencing this, and I was like, wait, where are you quoting from? He's like, oh, Jesus. I was like, what? That's not the nice, cuddly Jesus I know. So he said these things, and I went home just gripped uh, with a racing mind that grew into a lot of fear. It was the first time that I'd ever considered the possibility that somebody could deeply, truly, genuinely think they were a Christian and not be one. How do words like these from the mouth of Jesus not unsettle us or shake us a little? Like, I don't know how that's possible. I don't know if we're listening if those words don't in some way or another raise questions for us. And God certainly does sometimes say hard things intentionally to arouse us to a deeper level of thought, prayer. But that being said, there's two dangers that we need to steer away from here, and I really want you to listen to me. There's two dangers. One is explaining away what Jesus is saying and just be like, eh, don't worry about that. I remember I walked down the aisle, I did some altar call, I professed faith in Jesus, I'm a Christian. But Jesus is saying that it is possible to, with sincerity of heart, show up before him and think that you knew him. But he says to you, I have never known you. I've never known you. Jesus is saying people can be intellectually persuaded of Christianity emotionally invested in Christianity, missionally fruitful in Christianity, but they lack one thing. Do you know what it is? Look down at the passage. What's the one thing that these people standing before Jesus on the day of judgment don't talk at all about? Jesus. Of course, they, they call him Lord, Lord. But they reference their own behavior, their own decisions, their own lives, their own performance, their own track record, their own resume, all their auditions before God to try to get him to pay attention and notice, did you see me? Did you see me? Their life with God was motivated by trying to get attention from God and keep God's attention positive. It's a, it's a, it's a very pretty way to reject God for your entire life. 
The one thing that they were not seeking, though they were seeking the emotional thrill, though they were seeking the ministry fruit, though they were seeking intellectual coherence, Jesus didn't factor into that. How is it possible? How do do we get to a place like that? It's because we never wanted to surrender our will and our way because we really did believe Jesus' way was superior, was actually life, was better. And so what began as a little bit of a tug of war just began us kind of dropping the rope and walking away our own way. When Jesus calls his disciples, he calls them to come and die to themselves. He says, he is your life. Not your dreams, not your ways. And in following him and living with him and living in him, we find our life, right? The man seeks to cling to his life. He will surely lose it. But if you lay down your life for my sake in the kingdom, you will find it. Jesus says, seek first. Not your dreams, not building your kingdom of self, but seek first the kingdom of the Father and everything else that you need and you could ever desire will be given to you. What if what you want out of Christianity is pretty much everything that Christianity offers except God? That's the danger Jesus is warning us about. Where does Jesus factor in? Where does Christ factor in to the profession of your Christianity? Jesus is saying these things to you before you and I would ever stand before him on the day of judgment and give account to our lives, which is quite a merciful and kind thing for him to do, right? He's saying to some of us, wake up, wake up. He said that to me, senior year of college, Ben, wake up. How you grew up was a huge benefit. You knew who I was. You trusted my word. You were around Christians. You thought you were a Christian, so you went to a Christian Bible study. Those were good things. I met you there. But before you would ever know me, you had to know yourself and the bankruptcy that was there. And Jesus might be doing that to some of you even tonight. That might be the storm that's coming to expose the sand underneath you. There's another danger I want to warn you about before we finish with this last question, and that's to the sensitive souls in the room, to the sensitive consciences in the room, of which there's probably many. These words that Jesus said cannot spark permanent introspection for you. Maybe you've already started navel-gazing. You've already started introspecting. Am I really a Christian? Is this true about me? Is Jesus talking about me? Am I falsely assured? Is this not really true about me in a genuine way? Will I ever have assurance of salvation? Jesus would have you examine yourself. Jesus is okay with introspection so long as it boomerangs into extrospection, a deep looking out of yourself. Sure, look inside and consider, but you better set a clock and a timer, and that thing better be no longer than a handful of minutes. So one way or another, friends, either you look inside of yourself and you examine yourself and you run to Jesus in gratitude because he really has made you alive and you really do love him and you really do want him and you really do want to walk in his ways, or you look inside of yourself and you realize there's no life there, He's incidental to my life. I don't care. I'm not on the road that I'm on to get more of him. And you also should end up in front of Jesus instead of gratitude in need and to know that he'll never cast away any who come to him. Hear that. Don't permanently look inside of yourself. You're not going to find Jesus there. But you will find him outside of yourself, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, willingly giving you himself as a savior, even tonight, and as a friend, and as a helper in his life. The last question Jesus asks us to consider is what is holding up our life? And he gives this helpful construction metaphor of what have you built your life on? What are you asking to to keep you safe in the long run, to hold up the weight of your life? The point of the metaphor is to say, you'll never know what your foundations are until hard days come, and then you'll see. On easy days when the sun is shining, all the houses look exactly the same, but when the floods come and when the rain comes and when the hurricane comes, it very quickly reveals which house had concrete pillars underneath it and which house had nothing underneath it, just a house. Jesus is saying that suffering exposes what's really going on inside of us. 
What happens when the cards are stacked against you? Do you find just kind of a heart that's irate at God? Why did you do this? How can you do this to me? This isn't what I deserve from you. Do you just... Do we just kind of find ourselves running into our own anxiety, our own thought process? Is it a pretty godless existence when suffering comes, or does suffering push you right onto the rock of ages? And it's messy, and your mind's all over the place, and your faith is feeble and faint and weak, and there's a lot of sin in there, but there's also a lot of faith in there, and you find yourself like a kid to a dad who's scared, or a mom, I need you. The megastorm that exposed the foundations of these Pharisees and scribes and falsely assured people was the day of judgment. That was the storm. That was the flood that came in and exposed what their life was built on. And it was not built on mercy. It was not built on the grace of God. I already pointed it out, but who do they reference? Whose case are they pleading before Almighty God? They're saying, look at me. Haven't I done enough for you? Didn't I do everything right? I did it in your name. I did it the right way. See how I colored in between the lines? No mention. I'm a poor sinner. You're a great savior. No mention of I need you. Have mercy. Just a proud assertion of how good I've been. Weren't you paying attention and saw it? The only safe foundation for you to build your life on and to hold up the weight of your life is the free mercy of Almighty God. The only foundation for you to build or your friends or your mom or your dad, regardless of what road they're on at the moment, they're on one of them. The only safe foundation is Jesus substituting himself for you and taking your place. And if you feel convicted tonight and you feel like, well, the, this sermon was the storm that flooded my foundation and showed me that I'm imploding. There's nothing beneath me except me. It's just a spiral now. Don't you know how many times Jesus has used these words to draw people to himself? Don't you know how many people have lost money, lost family, lost friendships, lost social status? That was the flood that exposed they had no foundations and they ran to him. Here's the last few things I just want to say to you as we close this series. These are not my ideas. I got them from the same guy I quoted earlier, John Stott. But he said, this, the point of the Sermon on the Mount is not what are you going to do with the sermon. It's not the primary point. It's what are you going to do with the preacher. It's not what are your thoughts about the sermon or how are you going to respond to the sermon. It's how are you going to respond to the preacher. What are you going to do next after you've heard and considered these questions? What's your next move? Is it towards Jesus, who has authority, who is life, who astonished these crowds? Does he astonish you that he is still pursuing you and talking to you and pleading to you? Or if you're on the narrow road that leads to life, encouraging you and saying, come on, I'm with you. This is a championship path that leads to life. So friends, what I leave you with is a reminder that Jesus walked the narrow road. Every day of his life, he chose a path because it's where he most wanted to be and because it's where you needed him most to be. He says, I, my life was not taken from me. I laid it down on my own accord, which means he walked to the cross with his own two feet step by step tripping and stumbling because of the weight that was on his back, but he walked to that place because you needed him to be there. And he walked to that place because he wanted to be there, because it pleased his father to redeem people like you, to put you permanently on the path to life. And so friends, I just ask you, what's your next move? Will it be towards the Savior? Let's